I've been living in Berlin for about five years now. And you know what? The homesickness, it doesn't go away. But I found that doing little everyday things that remind me of home really helps soothe my soul. I've had to learn how to cook Singaporean food when I moved over to quell my hunger for home and for familiarity. And it's made me realize that so much of who we become is tied to the place we were born and raised in. So what then happens when we leave our cultural home or grow up away from it? Does our sense of self and identity start to tear at the seams? And how do we stay rooted to our heritage so that we don't end up feeling alienated from what makes us who we are? The biggest challenge with having moved around so much is, is the difficulty of, of identifying someplace as home and of thinking of somewhere as home and really and at the most practical, at the most basic level, answering that question, where are you from? Which everyone gets, especially when people detect an accent they can't place, which is kind of a melange of everything that I've grown up with. I just don't know how to answer that question. Welcome to Asia is Not a Country. I'm your host, Natalina Pereira. And on this podcast, I talk to Asian people about their journey towards understanding who they are and explore the diverse experiences of what it means to be Asian right now. We're not all mass geniuses or top scorers, though, to be honest, I was a top scorer and a teacher's pet. But I worked hard for that. It had nothing to do with being Asian. So yes, I'm here to hopefully set the record straight and to do away with overgeneralizations. So I've been living away from Singapore for about five years now, and I think parts of what makes me, me, Asian, has really definitely suffered from that. The one that sticks out the most to me is my ability to speak Mandarin. I think 13-year-old Natalina in school suffering in, in Mandarin or Chinese classes will not have thought this, but I miss speaking Mandarin so much. With Mandarin, I'm able to articulate almost my deepest desires and... Now that I can't do that anymore, that I can't code switch between Mandarin, Hokkien, Singlish, English, Malay, I feel like I'm not the full whole person that I was in Singapore. And, you know, learning German has not made it easier. If anything, it's made it worse. Because now when I try to think um, in a language that's not Mandarin, immediately German words come to mind. So I find myself in conversations with my grandmother or my mother and I'm speaking and I start, I mean, I think I'm speaking in Mandarin and they're kind of like, what did you just say? And I realize I, I said something in German, even though I was a thousand percent sure I was thinking of a Mandarin word. And I feel like maybe as someone who's moved away from home, Things that you may not have found important, living back in Singapore for me, have become really vital to, to who I am as a person. So in this episode, I wanted to explore that struggle or, yeah, the in internal, external struggle of being someone who, for the lack of a better term, grew up as a third culture kid to find out how they hold on to their cultural roots or create sort of cultural anchors, despite being so distant from their geographical home. 
I spoke to Aniru, or Ani as I call him, about his experience growing up as a third culture kid. Ani was born in Bahrain and lived there till he was two years old. His family then moved to Abu Dhabi for two years, Hong Kong for a couple of stints, but a total of five years, returned to India for a couple of years where both his parents are from, and he spent his high school and undergraduate years in Singapore. He moved to the U.S. for his master's and stayed on for work. And having lived in so many places, I wanted to start the interview with Ani to find out what home means to him. Just a heads up, the audio quality of this interview isn't the best. We had some issues while recording, so this is a Zoom recording that we're using. But Ani has a really wonderful way of articulating the struggles um, a lot of the culture kids face and maybe cannot find words for. So I hope that something in this interview resonates with you. All right, let's go. Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I think about often enough. Home for me for the longest time growing up meant wherever it is that my family was at a given point in time. And I grew up moving a lot by immediate family. My parents and my brother were more family and often visit our extended family back in India, in Southern India, where both my parents are from. But for the most part, home was wherever the four of us were. And there were times when I was at college in Singapore and my parents had moved to a new place, they'd moved to Oman. And then one winter break came up and I was telling my parents, oh, hey, going home for the homes. And then I stopped and paused and I think, well, I've never been to Oman in my life. So it's odd that that comes to mind as home. For the longest time, I thought of home as where my parents were. And as I've grown a bit older, I guess I'm about six years out from college now, and um, I've started to define it somehow in my own terms. And Singapore has become one of those homes. And wherever I am at a given point in time, like Boston at the moment, the United States more broadly feels like home. And I think of home also as a cultural concept where my values, my culture sees its home. And to a large extent, that is India as a cultural home, although geographically or as a place, it doesn't necessarily feel as much like home. And how is that like as, as a kid? Because you've moved around so, so much. Was it difficult to make friends and to keep these friends? I think as a kid, certainly a lot of kids uh, that I grew up with many of whom had similar experiences because I went to a lot of international schools. Many kids certainly find it hard. I found it hard to a small extent. We did have have some kind of community. And so to some extent, we had some stability in our social circle. And I say us, my brother is one year older. We shared the same set of friends. Apart from those people, I would say it wasn't necessarily hard making new friends because I always felt secure in, in having a handful of friends that I'd I built some relationships with. And I think these experiences also make you more adaptable. It helps to be adaptable by nature and that gets reinforced by these experiences. I feel like I was generally adaptable and generally excited about moving to new places and, and with every new move and making new friends either easily or maybe less easily in some places, I learned to adapt. It shaped a lot of the ways uh, that I interact with the world and with cultures and communities that I live in, move into. There's 
definitely a lot of things that were difficult with moving around. I think as a kid, many of them were things I didn't notice. What is home to me as my cultural home is different from what I think of geographically as my home. So I think that's become the biggest challenge as I grew to have an identity that's, that's mixed and, and uncertain. That feeling of being settled in my identity. I haven't quite gotten there, but I'm getting there bit by bit. I'm getting to a point where I'm comfortable with owning the fact that I don't have that 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 traditional notion of home, perhaps. <laughs> I think just hearing you speak, I and also because I've known you for a while now. I've always looked at you as a third kid, right? So third culture kids are people or individuals who were raised in a culture other than their parents or the culture of their country of nationality. And they've lived in different environments during a significant part of their child um, development years. And I wonder if you identify as a third culture kid and how you feel about that label. I only became aware of this label, obviously, to my teeth. Uh, I'm not sure how how long the the term existed. But as a kid, I never thought about it very much. I think that in, in the broadest sense that that label probably applies to me in many ways that it does to, to many others. I've certainly felt uncomfortable with the idea, with negotiating interactions with people that have preconceptions of, of what a third culture kid is. And, and, and often those are fairly negative stereotypes of people who don't really integrate into the communities, perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, the expat equivalent for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so I, I feel like I've been able to integrate into communities that, that I've lived in and bring something to that community and take something away. I, I feel like every place that I've lived in has very, very much shaped my worldview. And to a large extent, that's true of every third culture kid I've met. Um, but one one difference I I certainly see is that my whole culture is it's from India. My both my parents are from India. They grew up in circumstances very different from that of the parents of many of the kids that I I see similar to me as third culture kids. Many of these kids are Western, white, are diplomat kids, diplobrats as we call them in a lot of <laughs> schools, um, and so. So saw the world from this point position of privilege. Yeah, of, of being white, of being from a developed economy, of holding a passport that meant that you could go anywhere, anytime, and whose parents had the privilege of choosing where they went to and chasing opportunities for how optimal they might be for their lives, as opposed to the experience of my parents and, and, and the experience that I had growing up, which is uh, much more determined by the fact that my parents went wherever it was that my dad's company told them to go because that was what you did for my dad when, when he kind of made it in his career. It meant you took every opportunity and say no to no to something that meant to step up or that meant greater financial security for yourself is to be able to support family back home, et cetera. And so that, that's perhaps something that I see as a big difference between my experience and that of many other third culture by no means is that that uniform. And of course, there are many that grew up just like me with very similar circumstances and with similar framing from their parents. But I do think that the, 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 the term third culture kid, that brings up these connotations of relative ease and luxury and, and yeah, diplobrats and it's that. And all 
things and the associated plantations. Are there positive traits uh, of third culture kids that you've noticed? Absolutely. Whenever I meet another third culture kid, it doesn't take very long to figure out that they grew up in a similar way that they are third culture kids in that, in that broader sense. There's something about those early interactions, literally in the first few sentences, the, the, the mannerisms, the, the accents, the framing of certain questions that, that makes it very obvious. This person grew up moving a lot or grew up in, in a setting that they're not originally from, where they had to negotiate cultural differences and questions of, of their own identities. And it can be in the smallest things. I guess one question I get a lot from people who are not the culture is where were you born? It's as though that somehow is an indication of where you're from and where your entire identity is, uh, is housed. The, the equivalent question that I get from almost all third culture kids is where do you call home? Or where did you grow up? Or where do you go to high school? Uh, as, as better proxies, perhaps, of the, the types of experiences that might have shaped how you see the world. Um, and I see that as a more meaningful question. And it, it is also significantly easier for me to answer than the question, okay, where were you born? Or you know, wh what country are you a citizen of? Those are like very tangible ways in which I, I, I often see interactions being different. And I think that's extremely positive, at least from my experience, because it, it makes communication so much easier. And when you meet such, another, you know, such a person, another third culture, it, that connection is instantaneous because it eliminates a lot of these questions. And it's exciting exploring what somebody else's path has been. You know, united in it being third culture, but very distinct in terms of the the trajectory of the, the entire timeline, the countries they've been in, what ages they, they spend in each country. I feel like I've probably been guilty of asking you where you were from. I'm pretty sure I, I <laughs> when we first met at a university, what also struck me about your answer to the previous question was this idea of being a, a third culture kid and for you personally, taking something from a place you've lived, but also giving back something to that community. What it reminded me of was this project that you worked on reviving Kristang in, in Singapore, which is the, mm -hmm. maybe you can explain Kristang way better than I, I can. So I'll hand it over to you. I just thought that was like, a, such a wonderful way for someone who's lived in a country for, you know, eight to 10 years to give back to the community. Yeah, no, uh, I'm glad you bring that up. That to me is one of, um, it is absolutely one of those examples of finding a home in a culture and hopefully kind of positively contributing the way people see their culture. I, I was in university. I, I met somebody in my, in my Arabic class who fell in this racial category in Singapore of others. For all the listeners, really, Singapore's society is built around this notion of racial identities that pervades all of the country's policymaking, how people see um, themselves and how, how they see the community around them in these racial categories of broadly Chinese, Malay, Indian, and, and this catch-all of others. And so the experience of many people who are essentially native to this region of Singapore and Malaysia, Malaya as, as the region was previously called, has been that, that they were bunched up in this other category, right? And many of these people are basically Eurasians, by Singapore's uh, definition, Eurasians, not in that they come from Eurasia, but that they have 
both European and Asian heritage and ancestry. So many of these people are part Portuguese and part of one of the local communities, Chinese, Malay, or Indian, mostly referred to as Portuguese Eurasians or broadly Eurasians. And many of them spoke a language called Cristan or Malayan Creole Portuguese, a mix between Malay and Portuguese. A lot of the words are Portuguese, but the sentence structure uh, is largely Malay. And this language was spoken for hundreds of years in Malacca and in, in, in other parts of the coast, including Singapore. There were areas where Portuguese people came in contact with local people and over time built a community. You know, in Singapore, uh, it, was, it was spoken pretty widely, Singapore being another large trading post. But over time, it's completely disappeared. So most Portuguese Eurasians in Singapore had, had never even heard of Christian as a language. I didn't know that their grandparents spoke some language they didn't understand, but they didn't recognize it and they weren't necessarily curious enough to inquire. It was lost to an entire generation of Portuguese Eurasians. And if it was lost to them, it was lost to all of Singapore. It you know, it became obvious once we started studying languages of this region and identify the linguistic history of this region beyond what we're taught in schools in Singapore. We kind of discovered this language. This friend of mine, like I said, was Portuguese Eurasian. He and a bunch of us language enthusiasts came together and we said, well, we should kind of study this. And so we picked up a dictionary of it that was by Joan Marbeck, who now lives in Saranbar in Malaysia. And we kind of just looked through it. I speak a little Portuguese and I'd uh, been interested in Portuguese. And w- when I came across this, I was like, this is exciting. This is a great way to to stay in touch with that language in a way that's very localized. It's very relevant to this region. And others in our group, I, I think we, we kind of represent the entire diversity of Singapore's major ethnic groups. We were all super enthusiastic about trying to study the language and then trying to teach it to anybody who would be in, interested in learning it. And over seven, eight years now, we've taught it to thousands of people who've come to our classes. We set up a festival to showcase the, the culture and the language that Singaporeans of all races and of all backgrounds attended. And over time, this has become an example, not just for Singapore and the region, but for other efforts around the world that, that are hoping to revive languages that have been lost in their region or are, are close to lost. Um, and so coming back to the original question, I think it perhaps takes an external perspective to, to see what was lost there, to, to recognize that, that some things, something's off about how our nation building has progressed in Singapore and the fact that the military language that represents a very unity has been forgotten both and perhaps in, uh, it, I, in unfortunate ways been there. Eradicate it, say it, Eradicate. out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it takes, it perhaps takes some of that and takes some energy and, uh, it, and raising the consciousness of the importance of these elements of intangible heritage, intangible cultural value that I think every community should be able to, to rediscover. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like in terms of having lived in a country and having given back something to that country, I feel like you've done so much more than me. You've 
been part of a whole revival of a language that is so unique to Singapore and also to Malaysia. I don't know what I've done to to be Singaporean, right? How can I call Singaporean whom I've just lived my very normal, boring life and then I've left that country. But that's that's really, really nice to hear. Um, and I also wonder, growing up, like how did you see or position yourself in a new country, you, in every new country that you've lived in? Were these cities or countries transitory locations for you? Because you always knew that you were going to leave, right? It's not like you went to Hong Kong and like, okay, this is my new home now forever, right? So were you always trying to put down roots or was it more like, okay, I have maybe a year or two in this country and I'll make the best of it? Obviously, you don't think about this very much as a kid, but reflecting on those years, I do think that I maximized opportunities to get to know people, to build a community, and in some cases, reconnect with people several years later. The transient experience of moving this much continued into my adulthood. Even with Singapore, where I've spent so many years now, I've had milestones that I would think of as times when I would leave. So in, in some ways, that means you invest as much as you can in getting to know this place. But in others, it means that you don't fully invest, right? You don't fully seek to understand everything of what it makes, or what makes being Singaporean. Because I've not had that experience and trying to fit into various policies that apply to Singaporeans or to permanent residents. And all, all these things that you don't need to do as a foreigner. And for that same reason, you don't explore some of those and don't connect with, with either the positives or the negatives of various policies or social norms, et cetera. So with Singapore, every time I was leaving and I've left many times thinking that I'm returning <laughs> and that I'm moving to a whole new place, but somehow I'd find my way back. And so although the dominant mentality perhaps is that I'm, I'm leaving and I'm probably not coming back, I've started to realize, well, experience says otherwise I've come back to this place so many times and I keep coming back so hey, maybe this will be home but also I'm not closing doors to any new experiences and I continue to be excited about moving to new places and uh, in some ways having that transient experience of being there but also you know being intentional and thoughtful about engaging and finding something unique from that experience that I can add to what my identity is and to what my life experience has been. And so being a little bit more sage about the fact that I can't quite have it all planned out and uh, I might actually end up living here for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've mentioned your dad's job basically determining where you move to in the world. How was your relationship with your parents growing up, at least in films or whatever has been portrayed about kids who have had to move a lot? There is always sort of a tension, right? Like, why can't I stay in this place? I've, I've you know, made friendships and I want to keep those friendships. Why are we continuously moving? Has that affected your relationship with your parents? And has that changed now that you've grown up and understand that it kind of was a sort of privilege, right, to move to and see all these different places in the world? I'm wondering if you're open to sharing about that. Yeah. I think, if anything, this experience of always moving and having very little by way of a stable community apart from my two parents and my brother has meant that we are among the closest families that I know. 
in terms of the strength of our relationships with one another individually and as family unit. And I, I think that's really special. I think the bond that I have with each of my family members has only been strengthened by the experience of uh, relying on each other primarily through every move and recognizing perhaps that all those decisions were made for the benefit of, of all of us jointly. We all supported my dad in taking that next opportunity to move to a new place. Yeah. It's very heartwarming, but also like knowing you, that's such a anything to, to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm also wondering how you kind of stay rooted to, to your Indian heritage, right? Your Indian culture. And did it feel different moving to a city like Singapore, where we have a large Indian diaspora? Were these, were cities like Singapore easier to adapt to because you had, you know, quote unquote, your own people there? That's such a great question. My instinct is that it's been much harder in places mm. like Singapore, where there are many other Indians, especially sort of a, a localized community of Indians. And what I mean by that is that Hong Kong, for example, and, and even in Dubai, elsewhere in the Gulf, where there are lots of other Indian people, families, individuals, workers at, at all levels, all skill levels as well. One thing we shared in all of those places was that experience of being fairly transient, having moved there for opportunity, but knowing that you weren't necessarily staying there all your life. And so that does unite people a little bit more. I think that in a place like Singapore, that was much, much harder because everyone had a concept of what Indian was in the local context mm, that, yeah. that you simply couldn't possibly, you just, I, I can't quite find the word that I'm looking for, but like I simply couldn't fit into that vision or that, that notion of what Indian is in, in Singapore. And I think that's manifested itself in strange ways in, in how I see myself. In Singapore, many, many Indians are Tamil speaking, but less than 10% of India speaks Tamil. The, the population of that state is less than 10% out of the entire country. But when I was in school in Singapore, people assumed if you were Indian, that you spoke Tamil as your mother tongue, Emperor yep. Hindu, yep. and didn't eat base. Yep. Um, and uh, there are various other things that were positioned onto what they think of you as an individual. And often enough, with some of those labels don't quite fit. I either repel those labels, sometimes in not particularly productive ways, not so much about trying to ed educate people about diversity, but, but really perhaps even just trying harder to be different. Uh, and so it's been maybe positive and negative in many different ways, but I do think it's potentially a bit harder in places where people have preconceptions of what your, what your identity must be like because you're Indian or because your parents are from India, et cetera. To answer your first question about how I stay connected to, to this identity, I see it mostly as a cultural identity, as, as where my values are based, unless of India as a place. A lot of culture and values are transmitted, obviously, from parent to child. A large part of my set of values, how I see people, how I see adversity, how I see opportunity comes from from what might maybe be broadly termed as like Indian culture, but really my parents' um, values. 
And, and so that to me is the main connective tissue to, to my identity as an Indian. If anything, I've started to speak to my parents more in Malayalam, my native mother tongue, than in English, especially after leaving home. So growing up, we mostly spoke English in the household. And it, my parents would often speak to each other and make some Malayalam in English, but really I mostly communicated in English and I understood them perfectly well. But the moment I, I left home, it was really a conscious effort on my mom's part to say, well, you're really going to lose touch with the language if you don't speak it at all. And, and we're the only people you speak to, or we're the people in our family that you speak to the most. So we should all you know, like make conscious effort to speak more in this language that really connects me with India, with my extended family, and continues to keep it easy for me to communicate with everyone in terms that they feel comfortable. Right? Uh, and so I'm really glad that I've been able to gain that uh, through conscious effort that is now become far more automatic. So yeah, that's another perhaps very tangible piece of connective tissue to my culture. Yeah, I think I personally relate to that so much because, um, you know, my family is also Malayali on my father's side, right? And even though I've lived in Singapore, people always assume that if I'm Indian, I speak Tamil or they assume that you're Tamil. But I grew up not learning Malayalam because my grandmother died when I was really young. So we never learned the language. All I remember from her was her scolding us, Bani and Naye, like pig and dog, when she was really angry with us. Like it's all I remember from, from that language. And I think what you're talking about in terms of your parents being your, I guess, sort of like anchors to your cultural heritage and your cultural identity I didn't have that with, with my grandmother because my father then married my mom, who's Chinese. We never spoke the language at home. And I've always felt so disconnected to my Indian heritage, even though I live in a country that has a large group of Indian people. And even even though, yes, most of them are Tamil, I have a lot of Catholic Indian friends who are, you know, parents and grandparents are from Kerala, but none of us actually speak the language. And I always felt really, really sad about that. Other than like speaking to your parents um, in Malayalam, are there any rituals that you do or habits that make you feel more connected to the Indian culture or heritage of India or your family back home in India? We just didn't celebrate many kind of cultural festivals or, or traditions growing up. And so I think that's probably one way in which I have very few connections with Indian culture onto the tradition level. One thing kind of in that general realm is how, how big a cultural event weddings are in India. And so I try and attend a lot of weddings because that's like the best way to get to meet a ton of people. It's a huge cultural experience and it does help you stay connected to the culture. And um, those tend to be times when I, I make a visit to India to meet a lot of a lot of people at once, as opposed to having to visit a ton of people, seeing everyone in one place and celebrating something that is culturally very important to people really across India, but more locally in, in Kedula. This notion of what an Indian wedding is has been narrowed by what people see on TV. There's this show on Netflix that everyone, everyone's been talking about that I, I don't quit with the title on, but even more broadly, Bollywood has like a lot of these fun huge weddings that, that mm. everyone sees and, and associates with this big side Indian wedding idea. But weddings to me extremely different across the country. Weddings in the part of the country that, that, that we're from 
tend to be very boring affairs, quite honestly. Um, <laughs> it brings a lot of people together. And so what's enjoyable about the entire thing is seeing people and having those interactions. But the, the ceremony itself is about as boring as it gets, in my view. And it's, 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 it's late with religious elements. And so there's a priest that, you know, performs certain rites and uh, recites some chants. And there's no dancing, there's no alcohol. It happens early in the day, like almost always before 11 in the morning. And so there's not much room for the types of wedding-related fun that, that I think a lot of people associate with Indian weddings. On the other hand, obviously, people find other ways to make wedding celebrations fun in other ways. So to be uh, more interesting in more intimate ways in that people get together, perhaps the, the day before the wedding, the, the night before the wedding, uh, or the reception dinner several days out, you know, something like that. And that can be a lot more fun. So it does differ a lot across the country. And really, uh, what, what can be enjoyable about it is centered around who you're able to meet and have a fun time with. How does it feel to go back to India when you, you've never really lived in India for an extended period of time, right? Do you feel like an Indian citizen, an Indian national? I don't know. How do you place yourself? Are you an outsider? Yeah. That's a great question. I um, So I have spent some time in India. I went to school there, like a couple of years of middle school. Okay. I don't remember enjoying those years. Um, um, middle school in India. I was quite frankly pretty happy when I moved to Singapore and once again, in, in a more international community, would kind of see more of the world perhaps and had, had, had more diverse experiences. But when I visit India, I certainly do feel a lot like an outsider. I feel like because I didn't especially enjoy those years, perhaps those years actually made me see myself less uh, as an Indian and more as something you might think of as a, yeah, more of a global citizen or a third culture kid or whatever, because I just wasn't quite able to make that connection with India in the years that I did live there, especially in contrast with my brother, who I, I think it relatively really enjoyed those years in India and also moved to Singapore shortly after I did, but, but was eager to go back to India and he's lived in India ever since undergrad. What, what it's shown me is that it really is a matter of choosing. To some extent, you have this window and you have this ability to choose what your identity will be and whether you associate with the place or with the culture or whether you're maybe trying to leave that behind or maybe trying to assimilate more things into what you think of yourself, how you see yourself as, as an individual. And that latter uh, category is, is really where I see myself. I didn't connect as well with being Indian and I think through the choices that I've made in terms of where I go and what, what people I interact with, what other cultures I kind of assimilate into, into my identity, it becomes harder to see myself as Indian because I, I share very few of the experiences or the worldviews of people that I interact with when I go, go to India. And in very tangible ways, I speak differently from many Indians that I, I can switch back and forth. In Singapore, I speak English. In India, I speak more of an Indian English. In the U.S., I may, maybe tone some of those accents down and those mannerisms and those word choices down. And all of these are efforts to fit in a little bit more and feel less like an outsider and, and perceive that others perceive you less uh, as an outsider. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these kind of reinforce themselves. And I've seen this in many ways in my own interactions. 
In India, I find that switch a little harder, perhaps, because most Indians haven't left the country. And so even a slight inflection in the way I speak or a slightly different choice of words is, is enough to tip someone off that, oh, hey, this guy's different. And to some extent, it's also a matter of choosing to brush that off or to maybe see it as, as you're being treated as an outsider. I think I've reverted for the most part to maybe reacting to those circumstances as really being, oh, I am an outsider. I probably don't fit in as well as I'd, I'd like to or that, that might be convenient. <laughs> uh, yeah. Would you mind sharing one last piece of advice for our listeners or people who are still looking for anchors or for their homes? Definitely. I think that it's important for all of us to see ourselves as whole, as complete individuals, no matter what our identities are, whether we can answer this question, where is home for you or or where are you from or any of that. I think it's important to be able to own your identity and to to feel whole and to feel complete in that identity. And to think of that as a choice that you're making, to feel that agency to assimilate or to reject certain notions or certain elements of your identity. And to, to really own that and to be less reactive to the ways that people might see you and how... It, and I guess I'm, I'm rambling here a little bit, but it it's certainly important for us to be able to respond to to the ways that people see us without projecting that onto, onto how we see, see ourselves as individuals. As someone who's grown up in between cultures and now away from my home country, his advice on owning my identity and giving myself the agency to hold on to or reject elements that don't really work for me, I feel so thankful for that. I've struggled for the majority of my life with being half Indian, half Chinese, feeling that this halfness makes me 50% less Chinese or 50% less Indian. As if you could rate someone's culture, identity, or authenticity on a scale. And even if you're not a third culture kid, I think that his advice on being true and clear on who you are is useful, whether that's living up to the expectation of your parents or that society has placed on you or forging a life and an identity that speaks to who you want to be. So, if you decide to hold on to a certain aspect of your cultural heritage, I don't think that geographical proximity is always necessary. You can be in a whole other continent, but once you find your own cultural anchor and work towards understanding the history of that element and are consistent in your journey, I truly think you can reconnect with your culture. That could be as simple as learning to cook a traditional dish that your family usually eats during the Lunar New Year or Ramadan, or finding out about how your parents or grandparents prepared that dish and making it your own, riffing on it. Maybe you rely on the internet or on months of trial and error. I know I've been there, certainly. And 
I think that is a journey in and of itself because that has most certainly been my experience over the last five years in Berlin. And it's one of the things that brings me the closest to home and to comfort that I have here. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is produced and hosted by me, Natalina Pereira, and my co-producer is Jasmine Biomi. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music, Epidemic Sound. <laughs>